You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. Well, praise God. We're going to start something new this morning. I have a new series that I want to open up. Um, it's kind of a big topic. There is no way we can cover everything in one message, but we're just going to try and get started and see how far we can get. If you brought your Bible this morning, open it to 1 Samuel. Um, I'm sure you've been there recently. Maybe you have. It's possible. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to look briefly at an account. Really, it, it, we're at the beginning of the account of Samuel the prophet. We're not actually going to get to him much this morning, but we're going to look at his parents. Um, in the book of uh, Samuel, it begins with his mom and dad, his Elkanah and Hannah are his parents. And in the part of Israel that they lived, when they wanted to go to the temple to worship the Lord, they went to Shiloh. That was the nearest temple. That's really where we're trying to get to this morning is I want to look at this temple in Shiloh. The uh, priest who, I don't know if he went by the title high priest, but he was the priest in charge of the temple at Shiloh, and his name was Eli. And then he had a bunch of other priests working under him that helped do all the things they did in the temple, um, including on the employee roster on the payroll of the temple at Shiloh were two of his sons. That would be um, Hophni and Phineas. All right. That's kind of where we got to zero in this morning for where I want to go. His two sons were not the best. They worked at the temple. They worked as priests, but uh, they were not serving God. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says the sons of Eli were corrupt. Uh, they did not know the Lord. So they were doing corrupt things even in their position as priests, and they didn't know God. So they weren't, I, I guess they're technically working at the temple, but they weren't really working for God. They didn't know him. Um, they were in it for themselves. They were in it for what they could gain out of it. Um, if you dig into it, I'm not going to dig deep. I'll give you kind of a, a Cliff's Notes on some of their corruption without really going too far into it. Uh, number one, they were corrupt in how they handled the meat. In that day, keep in mind, this was a day when they were bringing offerings to the temple. Um, it was animal sacrifices. And if you go back into the book of Leviticus, it lays out very specifically the types of offerings, how they were to bring them, how the priests were to receive them. They were to handle it in a very specific way, and then they were to present it as an offering to the Lord in a very specific way, and then as a practical term in the temple, specific cuts of that meat after it was roasted on the altar was then taken, can I say, to the priest kitchen. And it's what fed the workers at the temple. This is all in the book of Leviticus. You can read all this for yourself. Um, but they didn't do it properly. Um, they would mishandle how they took it. They would take pieces of meat they weren't supposed to take. Um, in, in fact, as a, as a second violation of the laws of Leviticus, they wouldn't even sometimes wait for them to get to the presentation of their offering. Uh, they would send servants to go meet him while they were still coming and would literally collect some of the offering before it ever made it to the temple, before it was properly handled, and thereby, instead of walking away with a piece of cooked meat, 
they were taking raw meat. And historians tell us that then they turned that raw meat into an income stream. They would go sell it in the marketplace. Um, that was more, it was easier to use as a sellable product than cooked meat. And so that was just, and you could get deeper. There's a lot more detail in that, but they were corrupting the system that God had put in place using their position of priest to do it. If you keep reading as a third offense, um, Let's just say that the sons of Eli would, using their place as a priest, would uh, have inappropriate relationships with some of the women who came to bring their offerings and sacrifices to the Lord at the temple. If you think you might know what I'm saying, yeah, you're right. It was very inappropriate. But you, you compare the culture in that day, that's how the pagan temples operated. You ever studied the pagan temples? The pagan temples had prostitutes, and that was one of the ways they would worship their gods is with the prostitutes that you found at the temple. And Eli's sons decided, we want something like that, and so that's what they would do. And they this is clearly a violation of God's principles. They were reducing God's temple to be no different than any other pagan temple in that day. And... God was not happy about that. So, enough. I don't have to dig any deeper. Not going to give any more examples. No illustrations on the screen. You understand. They were corrupt. All right? So, let's go to uh, verse 17. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. That word abhor, it means to detest or despise. So the sin going on at the temple of Shiloh got so bad that the people in the nation of Israel from that region, they didn't even want to go anymore. They didn't want to take their offerings to the temple. They didn't want to be a part of the corruption going on at the temple. It just, and this is not a pun, left a bad taste in their mouth. It just, they're like, I don't want to do this. And so they just, they would quit going. Now this is further irritating our father. Now, the problem now, so you got this corruption in the temple. We have a saying in, in our culture, where does the buck stop? At the boss's desk. Who's the boss at this temple? Eli, who is the priest in charge and also dad. So Ultimately, it becomes his responsibility. He was not oblivious. He knew full well what was going on in his temple that he was in charge of. And what he had done is he had pulled his boys aside and said, now, boys, you need to stop doing that. And he would verbally chastise them and say, now, you need to quit. They ignored him. And his bark had no bite. Can I say it that way? He, he never followed through. He would verbally say, now, boys, you need to stop it. Boys, you need to stop it. But that was the end of it. And when they didn't stop it, then it just didn't stop. And he didn't do anything about it. I'm kind of thinking at a minimum, maybe just fire him, <laughs> you know, send him packing. I don't. But he did not. He would not deal with the corruption happening under his control. So here we go. Verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? We're going back to the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. 
with Aaron. Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? See, he could have done something about it, and he didn't. So now God sent another prophet on the scene to speak for him. And how did God view Eli's handling of this situation? Look at his words. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place? And then look at that next phrase. And honor your sons more than me. See, in the eyes of God, when something wrong, something that violates the commandments of God is happening under your watch, in his case, under his watch, and he did not deal with it, he allowed it to continue, that's how God viewed it. He said, you're honoring your sons more than me. That, that's how he, he viewed the issue. This could, could apply to most any of us, um, whatever happens under your control. So this doesn't happen everywhere. There's a lot of things happening in this world that we have no control over. But some of you have a degree of control in your workplace. Or maybe you actually own your business and you are the, the head honcho of your business. For many of us, what about your home? There's a place where you are the one in control of what happens in your house. So we could be in situations like being listed here when we overlook the sins of those who are under our authority. When we overlook that and we choose not to deal with it, then we are choosing to honor someone or something over or more than we honor God. Does that, does that make sense? Um, and I do think, um, especially in observation, one of the hardest places to handle that very situation is exactly where Eli was, parenting. There's something about when it's your own kid that's screwing up and you know it, and how we how we deal with that and how we handle that. The thing is, we do love our kids. I'm not questioning any parent's love for their kid. I don't know. We love our kids. We love them passionately. I would dare say 100% of the parents in the room or anywhere, we love our kids. We want good things for our kids. We want to build them up any way we can and help them, promote them, correct? That's, that's how we feel, Okay. But here's the irony. If we start giving them a pass over something we know is violating God's law when they're under our watch, we're not truly loving them. We're actually honoring them above God. The truth is, by keeping God first and loving Him, number one, that's how we demonstrate a proper love to our kids. And that's how we love them, by dealing with what's going on. I'm not going to try to put 
skin on anyone's situation. We've probably all been in somewhat situations like that. But you understand, we can't just let it slide. When we let it slide, we're actually setting our kids up for future failure and catastrophe when we're not willing to deal with it. At the end of the day, and I'm looking at Eli, he loved himself the most. I think the whole situation just made him uncomfortable. He didn't want to have to face the repercussions of calling them on the carpet, of firing them, or reprimanding them. I don't know what all the repercussions might have been in his life if they were going to... Who knows? Um, I do guess that this was probably an issue that started because he didn't properly discipline when they were young. How many of you parents have learned it's easier when they're young? When you let things slide, they don't go away. They get bigger, and then it gets harder. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Please, it wasn't just me, right? <laughs> you understand. And I, I'm guessing he probably let some things slide, and now he had big monsters on his hands, and he didn't know how to deal with them, so he just chose not to. Well, it ended up costing him. If you read the rest of the story, it costs... Well, we're going to read some of the rest of the story. I'm not going to read all the rest of the story. But the number one thing we need to do is love God first. Here's how I'll say it, and then I want to get back to this story. Um, one of the lessons we need to demonstrate to our kids in really any relationship is, I do love you, and I love you passionately. And it could be a child, it could be a family member, it could be a friend, that I love you to pieces, but I love God, number one in my life. And don't ever do something that would ask me to choose between you, because I will choose God every time. That's kind of the, the parameter we need to set. Don't make me choose. And we'll be good. Because I'm going to choose God every time. So let's, let's get back to the story. Verse 30. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. And he had. He had promised that this lineage would serve as his priests forever. <laughs> But now the Lord says, far be it from me. Now I'm going to pause. He says, far be it from me. Had he promised that lineage, they would serve forever. Yes. But was that promise conditional? Yeah. I'll read a commentary. This is, this is a, um, a theologian that I read after, and I'll, I'll quote him. He says, God did promise that the priesthood should continue in the family of Aaron forever. That's in Exodus 29, 9, uh, Exodus 40, 15, Numbers 25, 10 through 13. I mean, that's solid. Now, the commentary. It appears that the promise was absolute, but like all other such promises, it was conditioned by obedience. The family of Eli reaped for disobedience. Many times God has plainly stated the conditions of blessing and cursing. And these apply to all men alike, including priests. God cannot and will not bless any man who backslides and lives in sin contrary to the covenants made with him. God is as obligated to curse those who sin as he is obligated to bless those who do not. This is true both under the law and under grace. That is not something that changed when we went from the Old Covenant to the New. He's still God, and that's still true. That, that's what he expects. So even though God did make a promise to Aaron, uh, Eli didn't live up to it. 
he didn't keep up his side of the bargain. And when he got, un, got into disobedience, it cost him the priesthood. It cost his entire family the priesthood. And his lineage did not serve in the priesthood after that. Um, it, we're not going to read the rest of the story. A battle happens not long after that, and, and Eli and both of his sons all die in the same day. I mean, it, not only did they lose their jobs, they went home early. They lost their life. Um, so that was the end of that. All that to say, just because God has promised blessings and good things over our lives, we can still lose them. We can still mess it up. Are you with me? How? Bad choices. Just making wrong choices. Um, I want to read the rest of the verse. Let's go back to verse 30. I'll start at the top again. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it for me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now, our translation almost seems to spin a little bit because we don't use some of those words a lot in today's English. Um, but it's exactly what it implies there. Those who honor me, I will honor me. You could also translate it then, those who dishonor me, I will dishonor. Uh, on the negative side there, the words um, lightly esteem, the words uh, despise, and dishonor are all synonymous. Um, one way is to place low value on. Um, we'll get into that later. To place low value, to dis- disregard. Despise means you're not really, you're not valuing it. Um, that's what's going on. So he says, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who don't honor me, those who dishonor me, I will dishonor. And so as I look at that verse, notice it's not really up to God. He kind of left that up to us. He says, if you'll honor me, I'll honor you. If you lightly esteem me, I'll lightly esteem you. If you despise me, and again, I'll place low value on If you dishonor me, I'll dishonor you. It's not up to him. It's not up to his will or his sovereignty. In his sovereignty, he put this in our court. He said, it's up to you. I will treat you how you treat me. In a sense, that's what he said. You honor me, I'll honor you. Are you with me? So that's really where I want to zero in on in the next several Sundays. I just want to talk about honor. Are we honoring him? Do we honor him with our lives? Do, do we honor him in our church services? Do we honor him on the job, in the workplace? Do we honor him in our homes? Do you honor him in your quiet time when it's just you and him? Nobody else is around. In that devotion time, do we honor him? Because how much we honor him has a direct effect on how he honors us. Those who show him no honor will receive from him no honor. Now, that's not the side I want to end up on. (laughs) Because this whole thing looks very variable, doesn't it? So then I would see it, it seems to me likely to be true. Those who show him more honor will receive from him more honor. If we can increase how much we honor him, 
we are now allowing him to increase how much he honors us. It's variable. Do you see that? That's where I want to go. But we live in a culture that's, we've lost sight of honor. I'm not saying it's completely gone, but it is not what it used to be. Um, in a, in a big sense, well, let me say this first and then I'll get to my big sense. Those who honor God more, he will honor more. Um, I do a lot of reading of the old timers and I say that with complete and utter respect. I don't, that's not a derogatory term, derogatory term to me. That's very much a term of honor. I'm talking about the ministers, the men and women of God who have lived their lives, they've served the Lord, and now they've gone on to their heavenly reward. They're no longer with us. And I go back and I read their writings and I read their sermons and look at what their ministries look like. And I call them the old timers because they're not with us anymore. But I don't mean that in any way disrespectfully. But it's in that generation where I, I read this quote, if you want to see a greater move of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God in your midst, then you must learn to reverence Him. You must learn to honor Him. And and that resonates with me. So now back to my... We, we live in a culture where that has really slid. Honor as a, as a culture was highly under attack in, in our... We had a cultural rebellion in the 50s and the 60s, not into the 70s. And it's led our culture in a whole new direction. And honor largely went out the window. Um, everything has become common. Everything. And, and I'm not saying we all need to change this, but even look at the dress code in our culture. When's the last time we had on the whole, the whole shooting match? You know, and, and I'm not, on one hand, I'm not saying we need to get back to that, but on the other hand, I see that as a trend of just simplifying and dressing down and everything's casual. And there, there's a sense of losing our honor in that. We used to really dress up to go to church because we dressed for Him. Does that make sense? And I'm putting myself in the same boat. But our culture just doesn't do that anymore. And I'm, and there's a couple in the room that I still see. I, I see one tie in the whole room. <laughs> How many of you tried to buy, I'm talking to the men, how many of you tried to buy a suit recently? They're still out there, but they're not as easy to find. How many suit stores, just 20 years ago, did we used to go to that don't exist anymore? The market's not there. Now, I'm not saying suits don't exist. They do. But it's changing. Now, at the end of the day, I'm not saying we have to wear suits to honor God, but it was it was an outward display of an inward feeling. Now, we can still honor God in other ways. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have to go buy new wardrobes, but it, it's a heart thing. But do you see the trend in our culture is what I'm pointing out? Just everything is common. Everything is, is equal. We now have two, three, four generations of, of children growing up who aren't taught to respect their elders, who aren't taught to respect their teachers. It's it's a they're not taught what honor is. Um, are you following me? <laughs> Talk to some of the teachers in the school systems, and not not just teachers today. And compare it to teachers twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years ago, and talk about what's been going on. Now, that's just one example. It's all over the map, and and I'm going to stop giving examples because they're all over. But 
what am I thinking we've missed? So now in my studies, I've been reading about experiences of the old timers. What did church services look like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago in this nation? And I'm reading of church services they've had, we've never experienced. I'm talking services where the presence of God just filled the church in a, in a, in a tangible way. I've read of church services where the presence of God would come in so real and so thick that everyone just sat quietly, including the preacher. <laughs> Nobody spoke. Nobody moved for an hour, two hours. Just sat overwhelmed by the presence of God. And they didn't have nurseries back then. Kids are sitting with families, not moving, not making noise for an hour. Can I just say, that's God. You can't make that up. I'm telling you. And I'm reading about experiences like that, and I'm thinking, wow. Now, here's what I know about God. He's not a respecter of persons. It's not like he's holding out on us. He loved that generation more than us. No. If I've learned anything, he's waiting on us. And I'm seeing... Here's something else I'm seeing. You tell me if you agree or not. But I see an arrogance in a society today that thinks we are so much smarter than all the people who live before us. And we know so much more than all the people who live before us. And I could go further and I won't. But this attitude of, we're so much smarter than them. But the more I study, I'm finding out, yes, we have learned things. Especially technology. That's always changing. That's hard to keep up with sometimes. But that doesn't mean we're smarter. They were very highly intelligent people in previous generations. They just lived in a different time than we did. They had different things than we did. They weren't less smart. And when it comes to the church, are there things we've learned about God today that maybe they didn't know? Yeah. We've had a, a teaching revival that started in the 70s and went on through the 80s, and we've learned a lot of things about the Bible and about God that they didn't necessarily know. And if you go back through just the New Testament church history over the last 2,000 years, that's normal. That's the trend. It's a recovery from the dark ages is what it is. And little by little, we're getting things back that they had in the early church that were lost in the dark ages. And you can see this steady trend of revelation of God and revelation of the Bible all through church history. That's normal. But what I'm seeing today is, do we probably know some things they didn't? Yeah. But did they know some things that we've not learned? Yeah. There's some things they knew that we've lost. I, I want to keep going with other examples and I'll end up burning my whole message. I want to go back and talk about, have you read the stories? What, what did the church meetings look like with George Whitfield in the 1300s? The, the church meetings of John Wesley. I think he was a contemporary, John and Charles Wesley. I was reading recently of Charles Finney. Now that, that's a little later. He was about 150 years ago, um, late 1800s. And this doesn't quite fit my scenario, but I was just reading this one this week, so it's fresh in my mind. 
Charles Finney was an evangelist who traveled in the 1800s and he would preach Christ trying to get people saved. And he had come into a town that I'm not even sure there was a church. And the town gave him permission. I don't know who this guy is, but you want to you wanna give a little speech? Sure, you can speak in the town hall. So they gave him permission. So he went into the town hall. He announced we're having a meeting. And uh, when he showed up for the meeting, he said almost nobody came. He said there were a few women that showed up, and that was it. And he just felt prompted, so he didn't say a word. He didn't yell at them. He didn't degrade anybody. You know what he did? He just stepped back behind the podium. He got down on his knees. He closed his eyes, and he just began to quietly pray. That's all he did. And he just knelt there with his head in his knees and just prayed and began to pray. And I don't know exactly how long he prayed, but he prayed for a little while, and they're just kind of sitting there wondering, what's up with this guy? Next thing you know, the the presence of God moved into that room. Women started falling out of their chairs under the power of God, just laid out on the floor. You would just say unconscious, but they're just out under the power of God. Some of the other women kind of got a little freaked out by that and ran out of the room and ran home to tell their husbands who were in anywhere but that room in that day. And so a little while later, men started coming to figure out what in the world's going on. And they come running into the room. And then some of the men start falling out into the aisles under the power of God. Other men drop to their knees and start crying out, saying, Dear Lord God, save me. Under the convicting power of God. What did Charles Finney do? Never even opened his eyes. He just stayed behind the pulpit just quietly praying. Never preached a message, never said a word, and they're crying out to be saved. When's the last time we had a church service like that? That generation knew something. And I think it's arrogant on our part to just assume (laughs) we know more than them because we're so smart. God's not a respecter of persons. I just choose to think they knew something. They understood something that we could learn from. They understood something about honor. They understood something about reverencing God. And God showed up at their services. Are you following me? Hmm. You know, I'll say this. This is always dangerous when I just put my notes away. (laughs) But... But I want to make my point while I've got it in front of me. When you get this idea that, that you know it and they don't, that, that you've already got it figured out and there's nothing to learn from them, you know what? That, that, that's an arrogant position. And when you get into pride, it cuts you off from God. The book of James says that he actually will separate himself from you when you're in pride like that. It's the humble person that he gives the grace to. Well, I will connect that to Revelation. When you think you already know it all, he will step back from you and just let you think you know it all, knowing full well you don't. But he'll just let you think that. It's the humble person who he will then step in and reveal even more. Now, that could apply in a lot of scenarios, and I've I've applied it to my old timers, and again, I say that affectionately. But uh, I thought of other situations. Now, your situations may be different, I've been doing the preacher thing for a while, and now over the years, I've had a lot of opportunities 
to, to rub shoulders and have conversations with and have other experiences with other ministers and other preachers uh, in a variety of situations. Now, in one situation would be when I'm around other ministers who I consider senior to me, who I know have been through more than me, they've studied the Word longer than me, they know God better than me, and you can believe you me. I respect them and I honor them and I and I show them proper respect and I learn anything I can from them. That seems easy to understand. But there's other situations where maybe I'm hanging out with other pastors and and specifically pastors from other denominations that may be different than mine. And I've seen in that type of a scenario, pastors want to get arrogant because there's this idea that, well, my denomination knows the truth and yours is wrong. And so they move into this situation where, well, you're a, you're the wrong affiliation, so there's nothing I really have to learn from you. Well, what's God going to do in a situation like that? He's going to step back and let you think that. But I've learned that when I'm rubbing shoulders with other affiliations and I'm having those conversations and we talk about things of God, Sure enough, they're likely to say something maybe I don't agree with. Or maybe I see that a little different. But I've learned that if I'll just zip my lip and just show them a little respect and let them keep talking, eventually I'll still learn something. Because they've had experiences I haven't had and they've had encounters with God that I haven't had and even if I don't agree here they might know something over there that I hadn't seen yet and if I'll just respect them and humble myself God will still make sure I learn something he's like that so I just want to point that out I'm I'm ahead of myself now in my notes I know I am but let's get back here I want to go to Malachi chapter 1 I'm going to go a couple more places, and I don't know, I don't know where I'm at on time. Malachi 1.6 says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master, implies honors his master. If then I am the father, that's capital F, where is my honor? So let's pause. Who, who's talking here? This is God talking. We are no longer with Eli. We are now in the book of Malachi, which I'm going to guess puts us about 400 years before Jesus was born. So we're quite a ways forward. And yet God's having the same problem with some of his priests. And he's asking the same kind of questions. Um, if God says to you, where's my honor? It's not because you've been really good at honoring him. It's most likely because, uh-oh, <laughs> brace yourself. We're going to have a conversation. <laughs> and that's what's happening here. He says, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? What's the number one thing he says? Verse seven, you offer defiled food on my altar. Now I'll just pause there. Kind of the same thing that was going on, one of the same things going on with Eli. He says, you're offering defiled food on my altar. Now, I'm not going to dig deep into this, but we're still in Malachi, Old Testament church. The problem is defiled food on the altar. What would we call that today using our terminology? Uh, they're messing up the offering. 
That's what the altar's for. They were bringing offerings to the Lord. So he's talking about uh, you're defiling the offering. Now, I love saying this. I, I thank God we don't live in that culture today. No one brought animals to church this morning. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> we don't do that. We write a check. We throw in some cash. We bring the Lord other substance of ours, not animals. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> but um, that's any way you want to slice it or dice it, though, he's talking about offerings. And he says they're defiling it. Now, everybody relax. I'm not talking about money today. That's not where I'm going with this. But have you ever noticed how many people get really nervous when a preacher starts talking about money? Have you also noticed how much of the Bible talks about money? How much God talks about money? Have you looked at how many of Jesus' parables talked about money, either directly or talked about stewardship? If we couldn't talk about that, there's a whole lot of the Bible we just wouldn't be able to talk about. I'll just say that. Um, Proverbs 3, 9. I'll give you a quick example and I'll move on. Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Look at verse 10. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. I'll just connect the dot for you real quick. He is very much watching what we do with our resources, with, with our, with our money. And he says, you need to honor the Lord with your money. But then, what's he connected to? If you'll honor the Lord with your money, your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will overflow with new wine. What's he saying? Same thing he said in Samuel. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who honor me with their substance, I'm gonna honor your substance. Do you see the connection? So if we honor God with our stewardship, uh, He's going to put a hand of favor on what we're allowed to honor, <laughs> honor Him with. Our finances, our resources, the things in our life. Do you see that? So I'm not going to preach on money today, but I want you to see it's connected. Um, I'm going to speed up a little bit. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. I want to make another point about honor, and then we'll wrap this up. Romans chapter 13, verse 7. I'm, I'm talking about how we view honor. Uh, render therefore to all their due. That word due could be translated debt or that which is owed. He says, render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are, it's implied, are due. So I read it that way. Uh, customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, I will admit, most often when I hear a preacher talking about verse 8, he's connecting it to finances. Maybe your experience is different. Maybe I'm listening to the wrong preachers. I don't know. But a lot of times I hear verse 8 and they talk about you shouldn't have debt. Well, here's how I view that. That's between you and God. I do know there's some people the Lord has said, do not have debt. And you need to honor that. And there are other people that he, they work just fine with borrowing money. That's between you and God. I'm not going to make a blanket rule out of that. I will say in its context, that's not what he's talking about. We just read verse 7. He's basically saying, whatever you owe, pay it. 
If you owe taxes, pay it. If you owe honor, pay it. Don't let whatever you owe, don't let your debts go unpaid. That's really what he's saying there. I don't think he's saying you can never have the debt. If that was the case, taxes was a bad example to use. I paid my taxes last year. Does that mean I never have to pay them again? I wish. No. But as long as I pay them when they're due, everybody's happy. And that's the context of what he's saying here. He says, don't let your debts go unpaid. If you owe your taxes, pay your taxes. Let me give you a couple of the translations that kind of brings it out a little bit. English Standard Version says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything. And I'll stop on that verse. He says, just don't owe it. If you owe the debt, pay it. Um, the complete Jewish Bible puts it this way. Pay everyone what he is owed. If you owe the tax collector, pay your taxes. If you owe the revenue collector, pay revenue. If you owe someone respect, pay him respect. If you owe someone honor, pay him honor. Are, are you seeing it? I'll do one more. Just for fun. The God's Word translation says, pay everyone whatever you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay them. If you owe tolls, pay them. If you owe someone respect, respect that person. If you owe someone honor, honor that person. Now, I want to point out what Paul is doing here. He has equated the owing of a debt, the owing of taxes, with honor and with respect. He says, we owe respect to certain people. We owe honor. And if you owe something to someone, pay it. Does that make sense? In a lot of ways, that's the opposite of how people view it. A lot of times when you want to talk about respect and honor, people switch to the receiving end. And they want to demand, respect me. You need to respect me. You need to honor me. I just want to say, you can't do that with this verse. This verse is true in the order of, in the, in the respect of who we owe. I shouldn't use the word respect. In the context, <laughs> If we owe a debt, we pay it. You can't demand that someone honor you. If you owe the debt to someone to honor them, then you need to pay your debt. But if someone, and I'm not even saying you aren't worthy of it. I'm not even going there. Maybe they do owe you honor. Maybe they do owe you respect. But you can't demand it. It doesn't work the other direction. You know, some people might say, well, they need to respect me. If I hold a gun to their head, they'll respect me. No, they won't. They may do what you say, but they're not paying you respect. That's called coercion. To honor is something you give of your own choice. You can't be forced to honor. Why do I bring that out? Do you see that even in what we've already read? God won't force you to honor him, even though honor is due. He didn't force Eli. He let Eli choose. Likewise, we can't force anyone to honor us or respect us. So don't go there. I'm not trying to go there. Um,
one more element, and then I'll find a way to close this. When it comes to back to the side of us paying respect, something we like to do is we like to decide who we owe honor to, who we owe respect to, based on whether or not we feel like they've earned it. Whether we feel like they've earned our respect. Well, I'm not going to respect that person. They haven't earned it. Or I'm not going to do this because I don't feel like they've earned it. Be careful anytime you bring feelings into it. Feelings can get you in trouble. Let's go back to the example Paul used. How many of you feel like paying your taxes? Sorry, Gloria. I do not enjoy writing that check. <laughs> I'm sorry. Nobody likes property taxes. I don't feel like paying them. But not one time have I ever called her up on the phone and said, you know, I'm just not feeling it this year. I don't feel like I should have to pay property taxes. I don't feel like I owe them. I'm sure she loves me too. But I don't think that conversation is going to go well. No, it's not going to work that way. You could try that with the IRS. It's going to be even less gracious. She might try to be polite about it. The IRS, good luck. You let me know how that goes. I don't feel like paying my taxes. Sorry, it's not about feeling. There are going to be situations where we owe someone respect and we don't feel like it. I'm just, I'm letting you know ahead of time. It's a debt we owe and feelings will get you in trouble. If you owe the debt, no matter what it is, pay it. It's wicked not to. And I'm quoting uh, Psalm 37, 21. said, the wicked borrows and doesn't repay. The righteous shows mercy and gives. To owe a debt and not pay it, I call that wicked. I'm basing it on that psalm. Are you with me? Here's where I want to close. I'm going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And I'm going to read out of the New Living. I think that's what we got up there. That's 2 Timothy 3.1. Paul says, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. Uh, another translation says they will have no respect for what is holy. Boy, if that's not a sign of our times. Verse 3, they will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Boy, if you read that passage in the context of honor and respect, scoffing at God, lack of respect, disobedient to parents, lack of respect, no respect for what is holy. That was built in. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderous to others. No respect. And notice Paul said they'll have no self-control. All of this falls under self-control. Hmm. This would 
tie back to my example of sometimes you show respect in what you don't say, in what you don't do. Sometimes I just keep my opinions to myself. Why? Out of respect. Out of respect. I'm, in my mind, I'm going back to my conversations with other ministers. A lot of times I'll just keep my opinions to myself. Number one, pretty sure it's not my job to go around correcting other pastors. I don't think I want that job. <laughs> I don't want to be the pastor police. I'm just working on keeping myself on the right path. I don't want to be trying to correct others. And so I, besides that, I don't know everything. And even if I disagree, I've said all this already, even if I disagree on one point, there may be something else they've seen that I haven't. Okay, I won't repreach that. I've talked about all that. No, I better just close this thing up then. There's what I want to do. I'll just close it up. I think we're getting a good start on this. I told you, I can't get it all open in one message. But I want to take a few Sundays and just kind of dig her out on this. I'm going to hang my hat on First Samuel. The Lord said, those who honor me, I will honor. And so I will say, those who honor him more, he will honor more. I think all of us have a degree of knowledge and understanding about what honor is and about what respect is. But I would also say, all of us, myself included, we could learn more. We could ratchet it up a notch. We could walk a little higher. There's ways we could honor him more, ways that we could show him even greater respect and open the door for him to honor us more, to show us more honor in our lives, in our finances, in our church services, in every aspect of our lives. Amen. Does that make sense? Hmm. I, I, I keep going back to the stories of the old timers and I'll paint a picture and I'll, I'll close with this. But what would it be like to have him show up in that kind of a manifestation of his presence where we just sit and we just bask in his presence. Could you imagine all of us just sitting for an hour and nobody saying a word? Yeah. Right. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Hard imagining that. Everyone just sit, including the kids, just basking in his... I promise you we wouldn't leave the same way we came. Your understanding of him, your respect for him answered prayer all kinds of things would increase and I firmly believe we're not waiting on him he's not a respecter of persons he's waiting on us I say we step it up amen those who honor him he will honor those who honor him more he will honor more amen we'll stop here